Hello there. I'm Christopher Lee, Mary's in the Hut, and you, you are welcome at this week's Sit Rep Roundtable on a hot, muggy afternoon in London town. Well, in the next 60 minutes, no money, so no defence. Is that the no-brainer for the next 10 years in the MOD? Afghanistan, so the Pakistanis have done the Swat Valley. Now what do they do? And how does it help us in Helmand? Foreign media students in a top London college... What are they after? And are we teaching them to be top-rate subversives? And is it really possible to persuade disaffected Muslims to give terrorism a miss? And if the Scots are Scots, the Irish are Irish, the Welsh Welsh, then what are the English? And how do we know? In fact, how do they know? And another warning, if you're following the tennis, don't worry. It's all back on BFBS in 58 minutes at 5pm London time. Well, with me in the studio, the former diplomatic editor of the Daily Mail, John Dickey, from the London think tank, Chatham House, Dr Claire Spencer, and from the Quilliam organisation, its operations director and former Royal Signals company commander? Company commander? Captain. Captain. Ed Jagger. Um, early this morning, London time, as I think we all know now, the United States Army launched its long-awaited offensive against the Taliban in South Afghanistan's Helmand province. About 4,000 Marines as well as 650 Afghan troops are involved, supported by NATO planes. Claire, a big operation. Um, uh, surprisingly big? Um, no, and it depends what they want to achieve. It's, uh, it's not been... I mean, it's been anticipated, but not widely um, publicised, so... I think it's partly for the sake of the Afghan forces themselves, but whether they'll actually be able to hold any terrain uh, once they acquire it's another matter. Yeah, John Dickey, I must the whole point, uh, Brigadier General Larry Nicholson, who was driving this thing, he said, where we, I quote here, we, where we go, we will stay, and where we stay, we will hold, build and work towards transition of all security responsibilities to Afghan forces. I mean, it sounds the sort of thing you tell the Senate, but it's interesting to hear this from the local commander, isn't it? That is the key to the whole operation, in my view, because the British troops there have done marvels in gaining territory but not being able to hold it. You need the numbers, and the numbers are coming in in such strength now from the Americans with all the auxiliary forces that the idea is that uh, they will be able to keep the civilian population assured that it will not be uh, repossessed by the Taliban in, in 24 hours. Yep, I mean, Ed, um, Ed Jacker, I was... Looking last week, when was it, Friday, Saturday morning, first heard about it, I remember the British operation uh, Panchai Palang. Three Black Watch, three Scots launched airborne assault into, I suppose, what's one of the last of the Taliban strongholds in uh, Babajai, North Lashkar. Uh, that was an important operation, wasn't it? I don't think, I mean, look, just, just doing the arithmetic on the aircraft involved, that was a very, very big thing to, as a precedent or a pre uh, before this this one that the americans are doing now no i absolutely uh, agree i spent um, a good three years with the 16 air assault brigade and um, in fact it wasn't an airborne operation obviously because there was no parachuting involved but in terms of an air assault air assault, um, air assault mm. attack um um, in, in these locations, it was very big for the British Army in Afghan to um, to acquire all these um, aircraft and, and support aircraft for one one operation. It's uh, it's it, you know it's, it's a huge a huge win for us really in, in terms of that. And 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 what's more important is um, um, 
air assaults and airborne operations are very strategic in terms of um, pinpointing key strategic locations and headquarters. And so for um, these operations to continue is very important in, in gaining ground as opposed to normal um, land manoeuvre warfare. Do you see, so John? The cardinal aspect of all, keeping the ground once it's maintained. Yeah, I mean, that was a criticism, wasn't it? Uh, what, a couple of years ago, when the Americans would say, well, the, you know, the, the, the British went in there. And then what do they do once they, they, they whop the enemy and come out? And so the Taliban just went back in again, Claire. Well, I think it was a problem. I remember seeing a documentary a year or so ago where it was clear that having fought extremely hard to maintain and capture uh, certain targets, that there were no logistical supports. In fact, the, they had the Afghan army in relevant numbers ready to take over, and they couldn't stay there because they didn't have the logistics capability back to Helmand to actually uh, supply them with food and everything else they needed to stay put. So they had to withdraw them. And I remember seeing, you know, the British forces being extremely angry, having obviously mm. lost people in this action, to be told, oh, we hadn't planned ahead for this. Yeah. The Brigadier, um, um, Ed, was saying that uh, Brigadier Nicholson, he was making a point that his Marines, his US Marines, may take casualties. But he was also emphasising, I haven't heard this before, that any civilian casualties totally unacceptable it's a it's more than a sensitive subject isn't it absolutely and that's you know um uh, I know there's been a lot of criticism about um, the British forces the CIMIC operations out there and um, it's a completely different um, war zone to Iraq where you see a lot of infrastructure builds a lot of um, uh, building pipe rebuilding of pipelines gas electricity water and and the infrastructure that we saw um being a uh, um you know, added to in Bajra, it's completely different in uh, in Iraq. Uh, sorry, in Afghanistan. So it's very important that civilian casualties are kept to a minimum because this, in terms of winning hearts and minds, and the and the propaganda coming back to the uh, the UK and and other areas around the world, which are helping to radicalise um, uh, people all over the world, is is you know is minimised in in Afghanistan because uh, this is the um, the big you know really where Al Qaeda are uh, you know are, are fighting their war and um, and all the communications coming back to the rest of the world are being propagated from and to mm. so the, the focus is now away from Iraq and now Afghanistan. John uh, behind all this these operations um, yes there's a new overall commander General General Petraeus mm. um, there's General uh, McChrystal who is the, the the local man in in Afghanistan but behind it all. It's next month, isn't it? The elections for the president of Afghanistan. Yes, one doesn't want to be too cynical, but the whole timing of it all is geared to the fact that uh, you want to get as many people in a position to go to the polling booths as possible. I mean, there's been so much intimidation, so much attempt to dissuade people from taking part that it is important to gather as much strength on the ground to enable you know, a, a, a more realistic election to take place. Yeah, um, especially, Claire, as there are doubts whether the Americans have actually supported Karzai right the way through, certainly in the past 12 months. No, and they haven't kept their criticisms of him as quiet as, as they have done in uh, previous months. But, I mean, he too has criticised the Americans back for not being as supportive, and I think this whole issue of civilian death toll is something obviously resonates internally. Because it's quite high, isn't it? Well, I mean, there's a piece in the Times today saying the MOD, and this is just on the British side, is dealing with compensation claims arising from the deaths of 104 Afghan civilians killed over the last 18 months. 
Now, this has been kept reasonably quiet. I mean, it's good to hear there's compensation claims going through. But even so, it still seems very high, 104 people. Um, and this is in Afghanistan. And this is Afghanistan, yeah. Yeah, whereas the, the, a larger difficulty, um, Ed, is, is perhaps in the, the border areas where drones, pilotless drones, going in, zapping a target, uh, which in intelligence said, you know, that's where we've got to get to. Um, and, and, and taking out a lot of civilians at the same time. Absolutely, and uh, the Quillian Foundation have just done a big research project all around all four provinces in Pakistan, and uh, one of the key themes um, from all the students from 20 universities was that um, the, offense, the offensive that the Pakistan um, security forces were doing in the SWAT region was completely justified and very well supported. However, the American drones, the attacks that they were carried out, were, were, were you know, absolutely 100% not supported and um, were seen as very cowardly and, um, and the civilian toll from these, um, from these drone attacks, whether they're accurate or not, um, you know, has really caused a debate out there and, and the foreign policy, um, you know, of uh, the US in these border regions is not a popular one out there in uh, Pakistan right now. Claire, it's, 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 it's easy... And they make it easy, the Americans sometimes, to criticise American tactics, policy, strategy, almost everything. Um, you get the impression, though, that they, with the overall command of Petraeus and the people that he's brought in, they're starting not necessarily to get it right, but realising far more what they've got to do to get it right now. Yes, and I think the Americans themselves are talking much more about cause and effect. I mean, it's easy to talk about hearts and minds, but actually seeing the way the whole Taliban threat has surged. I mean, in Pakistan, they're now also relying on uh, the Pakistani army. And again, there's, uh, there's commentary suggesting that what the Pakistanis are doing may not actually suit uh, US intentions in the area. So they don't entirely control the arena in which they're, in which they're fighting. And I think it's, it, it's realising that it's no use having a strategy and implementing it if you're not actually light-footed enough to change gear very quickly if it seemed to be going wrong and your objectives are not being met. And I think it's that flexibility which Petraeus is bringing uh, to US thinking. John, the, the, um, the Foreign Office, uh, along with the State Department, I suppose, still now thinking that Pakistan is the key to Afghanistan. I think so, because of the porous nature of the border between the two countries, it's seen as important to be able to cut off the supply links as far as possible. And the fact that, uh, you know, the warlords have torn up the peace deals in, uh, in the northern uh, Pakistan is a sign of the increasing challenge that has to be faced between the two parts of this enormous challenge, the Afghan part and the Pakistan part. Mm. Mm. Right. I want to go to something else at the moment, um, and that's the London-based Institute for Public Policy Research. It's... Uh, its final part of its study on the future defence spending and policy. Um, we were running that um, quite big this week in earlier programmes on F BFBS, and it still makes grim reading, doesn't matter how many times you hear it. Cutting defence spending by a quarter, no trident, back to the Euro Defence Drawing Board. I can hear the groans now. I can also hear Jamie Gordon. 
The commission comprises of some eminent figures in the world of defence, including former Secretary-General of NATO Lord George Robertson, former Liberal Democrat leader and envoy to Bosnia Lord Paddy Ashdown, and Lord Charles Guthrie, who was Chief of the Defence Staff. The document, entitled Shared Responsibilities and Two Years in the Making, is described as a call to action. It's been looking at the kind of defence policies that it feels should be employed, given the current security threats, the impact of 9-11 and the financial crisis. The thrust of the report suggests Britain can no longer afford to be a dominant military power and should slash its planned defence spending by some £24 billion. Particular attention has been paid to the UK's nuclear deterrent. The government is committed to renewing the Trident programme at an estimated cost of £20 billion. And although the report does not suggest scrapping Trident, it certainly advocates a nuclear-free world and debate on the suitability of the submarine-based missile system. Lord Ashdown says the global ground rules have changed. First is that the world we're living in is not the Cold War world. The second is that there is a serious... We assess that the greatest threat to the world now does not come through nuclear armed states but through nuclear proliferation and we believe that Britain should be playing an active bold part in that including committing to that process all our nuclear weapon holdings and thirdly we recognise that there is a massive constraint problem. The Armed Forces Minister Bill Rammel says the UK is working towards a world free of nuclear weapons but he also says that the government's current defence plans are affordable. We don't put forward proposals uh, to invest in equipment unless we believe it is necessary um, and, you know, you constantly get uh, critiques run in our national newspapers that we're not spending enough. The report comes after news of a £1 billion overspend on two aircraft carriers. The project was delayed in December, and the MOD have said that they acknowledged at the time there would be a cost increase. The report's other main conclusions include setting up a National Security Council, a greater specialisation in the British military, moving away from what Lord Ashdown called full-spectrum armed forces, and also closer ties with Europe and less reliance on the US. Lord Ashdown says he thinks now is the time to move on from the past. We are now reaching the end of nearly 600 years of domination of Western power, Western institutions and Western values and world affairs. We're going to have to reach out to establish a new concordiat with other nations and other growing powers in order to be able to secure um, a secure world in changing and turbulent circumstances. Paddy Ashdown ending that report from Jamie Gordon. Uh, still with me in, in, in the studio at the Sit Rip Round Table, former diplomatic editor of the Daily Mail, John Dickey, and from London Think Tank, Chatham House, Dr. Claire Spencer, and from the Quilliam Foundation, Ed Jagger. John, um, Lord Robertson, Lord Ashdown, they're pretty impressive credentials, aren't they, to be chairing this? It's so it, it, just not a couple of nutters in the left wing think tank. Indeed, plus also. Um uh, Sir Jeremy Greenstock, who was the uh, British ambassador at the United Nations at the time of the Iraq War, and Lord Guthrie, who was the former chief of defence staff. So that these are people who know what they're talking about and can look further forward than merely the next five or six months. Yeah. I was, I was thinking um, about this, this whole idea, um, Ed. I mean, you belong to a, um, an organisation. Claire, you belong to an organisation. Having to think, having to put out policy statements, um, etc. How much notice, Claire, hmm. do... Sorry, I interrupt the coffee there. <laughs> how, how, much, how, how much notice are we really expected uh, to believe that government, that MOD, will take of this, of this report? 
Well, I think we're, we're living at a time where you've got to convince the general public that money being spent and committed over the next few years where we're going to be heavily indebted is going to be money well spent. And I frankly don't think the case has been made to the wider taxpayer over Trident. You know, Germany is still an influence in the world and doesn't rely on a nuclear deterrent. And convincing people who can see immediate uh, expenditure needs and, and public spending cutbacks to say that we're going to spend up to 20 billion over the next few years. I know it's a billion and a half each year it's supposed to be, uh, but it amounts to about 20 billion over the next 10, 15 years. Is yeah. that right? To spend that on something which effectively you never really want to use. I mean, it's unthinkable we're actually going to use. I don't see that we've made the case for deterrent when the press at the same time are full of shortages for our boys on the ground when it comes to, you know, supplying them with the right kind of armoured armored vehicles, the right kind of equipment that for actions they're actually fighting now. So why are we talking in large billions for projects which uh, very few people are convinced we need? And I'm talking about the wider, you know, the wider taxpaying public rather than the defence community who are split down the middle on this, but there's still quite a wide support for this, which seems to hark back to the Cold War era. And when we have immediate needs which are not being met. Yeah. And I don't think that debate has been had publicly enough to convince taxpayers uh, of the way to go forward. Ed, um, as somebody in the army, so wearing the boots on the ground, um, was there ever a sort of feeling in, in, in your moments of, um, that soldiers would, would say, yeah, let's stop spending money on Trident or, or, or whatever, or did they just see the bigger picture? No, I th- I mean, it's very key when wherever you are um, in in a war zone, where, all over the world, you're generally um, surrounded by other coalition forces. And when you compare our equipment to the Americans, you know, obviously their their equipment's going to be uh, much technically superior than ours. Uh, but then when you work with other coalition forces, then you know they they are not to our standards. However, in these, if you're put into that situation, and you do not have the correct equipment to do your job. Um, then that's a position that a soldier shouldn't be put in and is one that will always, he will always question. Um, however, um, what this IBPR um, policy paper is trying to do is to look to the future of where are soldiers going to be in a position where they're fighting or not fighting and what do they need to do that job. And this is very important. Mm. Um, and it's a time you know, the whole the, um, the world is questioning um, whether we should have been in Iraq, why we're in Iraq, and the same for Afghanistan. And, um, and strategic thinking needs to happen now to see where our young soldiers are going to be in the future. So, um, so this work is vital, and the 109 recommendations are very important to government, and government would be very silly. They're avoiding it at the moment, but they'd be very silly not to take them on board. Right. Somebody has been taking it on board. I, I imagine as the Defence and Security Correspondent of the Financial Times, James, James Blitz. James, um, if the IPPR ideas were adopted... Have you got any idea what British forces would look like in, say, 10, 20 years from now? Well, it's difficult to say. I mean, one has to be careful because they do put forward some ideas like delaying Trident and so on, and they also call for sort of cutbacks in defence spending, accepting that we can't live above our means. But I think probably the most important thing that I think was in the report was the idea of actually pooling 
um, all of the sort of work that's done in security across Whitehall, both in defense, foreign policy, uh, international development, the stuff done by the intelligence agencies. And so I think what that would do is it would put far more of a focus, as I think the IPPR report wanted to, on the kinds of threats that we face, not so much in conventional terms, but more within the UK in terms of jihadism or cybersecurity, that kind of thing. So I think that's where the kind of focus is. I mean, I think it's difficult to look at the report and say, well, those are going to be the implications, because I think they they don't sort of say you've got to cut this or that in such specific terms, I think. There's this balance. Uh, on one side, you've got people saying, look, it's a no-brainer. We don't have enough money, so you've got to cut your cut your cloth accordingly, especially as we've got to stop looking at, um, I don't know, the old Cold War scenarios. And on the other side, you've got what capabilities of you might have to try and second-guess where you're going to be in 20 years' time. And 20 years ago, there are not that many people guess we would be where we are now. I agree. You know, I've been following this debate for a while now, and I think, you know, as you look at it, almost everybody agrees, and there's a very interesting report out today by the Royal United Services Institute. Everybody agrees defence is going to take a really big hit after the next election. They're looking at a 10 to 15% reduction in the annual budget of the Ministry of Defence. But on the other hand, when you talk to people about where the cuts will come, it's so difficult to get any clear sense of what can be done. I mean, so many of these projects, uh, Trident politically, it's very difficult politically um, to scrap, although it is tempting because there's one great big check to be written there. Um, the aircraft carrier is very difficult without significant penalty costs. JSF, very difficult without completely undermining our relationship with the U.S., um, it's very, very difficult. And, um, of course, you've got at the moment the fight between the army and the other forces at the service chief level, which is, is not great. My own personal view is that I think the service chiefs should actually now join together. We've got three new service chiefs coming in and actually go out and make the case to defense to the country. Uh, in a much more active way than they have been up till now. My view is that if senior people in the NHS or in education can go out and say, as they often have done over many years, we need to defend these services, I don't see why the service chiefs now shouldn't go out and actually make a debate in the country for defence spending to be maintained. Right. Um, they've got big enough PR departments, they ought to be able to do it. Um, tell me, there's another side of this. I mean, it, 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 cooperation, cooperation in Europe, cooperation with you know, Euro Defence, that one's back on the table now. Um, it was interesting that this week NATO announced that the Cooperation Council with Russia is back together. Um, I mean, that's, that's particularly important, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, it's important because what you've got in the next few days is President Obama is going to be in Moscow for his first full summit with President Medvedev. And Obama has said that he really does want to try and get the U.S.-Russia relationship going again. There should be some agreements on arms control. But the U.S. has been very good in saying 
that the Europeans can't be left out of this. And if the Russians want to have a decent relationship with the U.S., they've also got to re-establish some of the things at the NATO level that have been lost, such as military-to-military cooperation and so on. I mean, I don't see the agreement at the NATO-Russia level as being a great turnaround. There is still an enormous amount of pain about what the Russians did in Georgia last August. They're still regarding those two enclaves inside Georgia as being independent states. That's very unacceptable to many countries in Europe. But nonetheless, it's a good thing that there's a little bit more confidence building on the, on the sort of practical military side of things between NATO and Russia. Right, James Blitz, thank you very much indeed. John Dickey, I mean, you've seen this for a couple of decades now, haven't you? This idea, oh, we've got to get back to, uh, got to get more in bed with the rest of Europe. Uh, I mean, NATO is, a lot of it is Europe, etc. It's one of the things that never works. Well, there is a better hope now in as much as the French have uh, rejoined the integrated military command. But there was an interesting aspect of the IPPR report in as much as, and I think it was stressed too by uh, Lord Ashton, that we in Britain should not delude ourselves that in all circumstances the Americans will see that we're all right. And I think this ties in with the debate on Trident. You know, Is it the time to go in for unilateral disarmament on a nuclear basis when there are countries like Iran and North Korea getting nuclear? And therefore, would we in Britain be happy to leave a nuclear power in, in Europe solely in French hands? Hmm. But equally, there is a greater case for coordination between us and Europe. But the difficulty is, should it be under NATO or should it be under the European Union? This has always been a difficult situation. Right. Ed, it just, it just strikes me this whole Trident debate is a, is a bit of a sort of red herring in a way because what we're not talking... We should be talking about nuclear capability, not just Trident. Where you have that nuclear capability seems to be not to discuss at all because the, the whole thing about whether we should renew Trident or not gets in the way. I mean, Tomahawk, for example, uh, put a nuclear warhead on it. You've asked me a technical question, which has uh, stumped me. Um, uh, I don't know a lot about Tom Hawk or, or, or Trident. I know that obviously Trident is our is our main, um, you know, nuclear deterrent in terms of defence, and um, uh, which is important. And um, and one of the key things that Lord Paddy Ashdown did. Um, you know, talk about was America now is not looking over the Atlantic, is not looking to gain support from Europe in order to have a, a you know a world a world influence. It's looking towards Russia, um, India, and China. Mm. In the next ten years, they're going to be the up and coming superpowers, equal almost to the U.S. And if and the alliances made between these four countries will determine world politics, not whether Britain is supporting. Uh, a U.S. Um, decision, or Britain and France, or Britain and Germany and the U.S. It's going to be these four countries that that are determining world politics. Yeah. Claire, in your in your uh, think tank in Chatham House, do you, I mean, talking to people from other countries? So I mean, Ed's talking about China, India, etc. Do they, are they impressed the fact that we've got Trident? Does it actually matter in their thinking, their strategic thinking, or? Is it just a question we, we could possibly have a nuclear capability? It doesn't matter where, it's, where we've got it. Well, if you're talking about the Middle East, I mean, what they've noticed most in recent years is conventional capability, because that's been most visible, hasn't that's what it, we've been in, doing. Uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I think, to be honest, uh, the vision over certainly policies, US uh, and European policy towards Iran would have more credibility if there was active engagement in D 
nuclearization, which Obama himself has, has signed up to. He wants to see a nuclear-free world. So we may well find ourselves out of sync, dare I say it, if something uh, revolutionary happens on that front in, in the U.S., so I think um, the outside world sees the UK as a small part player. You can almost see the Iranians blaming the, the UK for what's going on there as, as evidence of the fact they're not in the least bit worried about our nuclear capability because they don't anticipate any major reaction. Listen, I, the thing that struck me in the last uh, few days, uh, which is completely non-nuclear, is completely conventionally right. You know, everything we do at the moment or had done for ages, you know, Falklands. That wasn't a nuclear thing. No. And that was a big, big thing for us to do. Um, 91 in Iraq, uh, 2003 in Iraq. And now uh, uh, the Pakistanis are mopping up in the Swat Valley. And they seem to be doing a reasonably good job before they get on to the big, the big, the big task. What do they do next, Claire? I mean... Um, no, you've done it. We're we getting back to the position where John was talking about uh, earlier. It's OK to take something, but how do you hold it? Well, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to do my homework on this, but my understanding is the Pakistanis are now focusing on Waziristan. And there seem to be so That's many... That's the hard one, isn't that's it? That's the hard one. So there are so many elements of this strategy. And, of course, you know, in the past there's been question marks not only over the capability of the Pakistani army, but the commitment to any kind of military solution. As we've discussed in this studio before, mm. the Pakistani weak link is that they are not convinced uh, a military solution is the answer. And if I may link this back to the previous discussion, this seems to me absolutely to be embedded in this discussion about setting up for Britain and elsewhere at the European level a national and maybe European Security Council where you can actually make the development, uh, the foreign policy aims fit together with the purely defence aims because once the military move into action, it seems to me the weakness in both Iraq and Afghanistan, which is why we're in the mess we are, is there hasn't been sufficient joined-up thinking with the other, other elements of the equation, particularly the development effort, uh, the funding, the economy, the employment, the the whole hearts and minds argument in a civilian sense as well as a, a military sense. And this was being talked about not very widely at the time of the Strategic Defence Review. You remember Gosh. in 1997 I was involved in it. I remember one of the questions raised there is why are we talking about defence? We should be talking about defence as a component of security. Yeah. So if that relates back to what the Pakistanis are doing, I don't know. Well, it but does, I think it's part, it? of, it's part of a bigger argument is, you know, I don't think any of these military-only solutions are ever going to do it. I'm of the opinion that it's actually, to date, made things worse vis-a-vis combating the Taliban. Yeah. I mean, it's an example, isn't it? I mean, John D. Clare's talking about um, the full-scale operation that is yet to come against the uh, Pakistan Taliban mainly in that uh, South Waziristan uh, region. That is a heck of a different uh, thing it's, to it, mopping it, up in the Swat Valley, isn't no, it? No, it's a much bigger challenge. You're, you're against very strong warlords who have not only the equipment, but the loyalty of lots of people who are willing to stand uh, and fight to the last man. And again, it's a question, as Dr. Spencer was saying, of combining the military effort with the civilian development reconstruction uh, attitude, because all these civilians who lose their houses are not going to blame uh, the Taliban. They're going to, going to blame the Pakistan and the Americans. Yeah, and, and keep doing it. Mm. Um, listen, we're coming up to half past the hour. Uh, tennis fans, don't worry. Don't put the tea on. Five o'clock, London time. BFBS will be back at Wimbledon. For what reason puzzles me, but never mind, because that game's over. Now, listen, um, an important development of that war in Pakistan and against Pakistan Taliban in the Swat Valley has been the tragic spectacle 
of close on two million civilians trying to escape the battlegrounds. These are the IDPs, the Internally Displaced People. Simon Shawner of the International uh, Committee of the Red Cross is on the line from Geneva. Simon, this is not an isolated example of mass movement of people trying to escape war in their own homeland, not crossing borders, but in their own homeland. No, of course it isn't. Uh, IDPs are a, are a feature of modern-day conflict. And in fact, the ICRC just commissioned and carried out uh, a survey in eight countries affected by conflict, including uh, countries like Afghanistan and the DRC. And we found out that about 56% of the population of those conflict-affected countries had been displaced. And so, in fact, what we see, what we knew from experience working in the field, but what, what this survey now uh, tells us is that, is that it is a reality for, for most people affected by conflict, and they list it as, as one of their fear and, and one of the, the, the realities they have to cope with once a conflict erupts. Yeah, I mean, um, I was talking there about the Swat Valley, but the, I suppose the best example, or the worst example, which way you look at it, was probably what's been going on in Sri Lanka. Well, in Sri Lanka, you had indeed uh, several uh, hundreds of thousands of people uh, who had been displaced for months from their homes, from the, the, the villages where they lived, into a very tiny coastal area uh, that then came under attack and was controlled by the, the Tamil Tigers. Those people were displaced already for months before the final push by the Sri Lankan army, uh, which then forced them to move once more out of the conflict area, and, and, and those people are now living in, uh, in IDP camps and do not know when they will, uh, they will get back to, the, to their homes if they, they're still standing. Tell me, what's the, where does the responsibility of IDP handling um, uh, and the crossover to refugee status, where does that happen? Well, in terms of status, an internally displaced person is somebody who has to flee their home but does not cross uh, a state's borders, so stays within the border of a given state. A refugee is someone who crosses the border into another country and becomes a refugee. Uh, in terms of responsibilities, clearly uh, for IDPs, the, the responsibility lays with the state, and is the, 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 it is the state's obligation to uh, ensure that IDPs uh, are treated in accordance when there is a conflict taking place with international humanitarian law, the Geneva Conventions, and that the state provides for, for those people once they are displaced and ensures that once they wish to return to their homes, they can do so. Right. I think that, I mean, SWAT was an example of, I suppose, of short notice, wasn't it, of a mass movement of people. Do we have any idea of the longer-term effects on so many people on the move? Well, it, it's very difficult to say. I mean, I was in, uh, in, in northern Pakistan when, when people started fleeing, and, and the rate at which they fled was just, uh, just incredible. Several uh, hundreds of thousands of people within days left their homes, and, and it's still today very unclear what will happen. Uh, clearly, sometimes the status of IDP and what they do, do they return home or don't, or, or don't, or don't um, is fraught with, uh, with political um, elements and, and, and we of course as humanitarians care about the well-being of individuals and care about them when they flee and once they return home but, but when they return home is of course a very difficult question and, and we believe that of course it is the, the displaced persons themselves that must make that call and, and decide when it's safe for them uh, to go back because it, it is all about safety and their ability to, uh, to, to go on and make a living. Right. Simon Shawne, the International um, Committee of the Red Cross in Geneva, thank you very much indeed. You know, this isn't, is it? I mean, Claire, not a new phenomenon. I was, I was thinking perhaps a bit tritely. I was thinking about the Israelis or the Israelites 
you know, fleeing from Herod. I mean, the, the, the idea of displacing mm. a, a nation almost, nation people, as we're seeing in the SWAT, two million people on the move. I know. Where are they all ending up? I mean, who's yeah. caring for them? I mean, that's the size of yeah. absolute central London, not greater London, yes. central London. Yeah. Suddenly, they're on their toes and they're away. Yes. Now, what is the consequence of the of stability of a region? Well, there are cases where after hostilities are finished, people may return. But as you say, it sometimes creates new realities. If we think of Iraq, um, because of the ethnic conflict uh, within Iraq, obviously communities which used to be Sunni and Shia mixed are now the, one of the reasons the violence has gone down relative to a few years ago is that they've been cleaned out and so neighbourhoods are more solidly Shia and Sunni. Now, it depends whether people find somewhere to settle and whether grievances such as lost property, lost access to businesses, etc., ever get resolved or whether they accept this as a consequence that, you know, the, the checkerboard, as it was, has changed. And unfortunately, in some parts of the world, and you can think of Israel-Palestine, but most of the IDPs there are not IDPs in the sense that Palestinians yeah. who are outside the, the former borders of what was pre-Israeli-Palestine are now mostly in Syria, Lebanon and Jordan. They're not actually... There are refugee camps within... Uh, uh, within the West Bank, uh, and you could even suggest that Gaza is one big refugee camp now. It was a mixture of refugee camps and uh, Palestinian civilians, but they're living in similar conditions. That can go on for 60 years, mm. is, is in that particular case. And uh, so, I mean, it's it's forever been with us where there is large-scale conflict. Yes. Well, so, the worst John. example is surely the Sudan, where there are you know, hundreds of thousands of people who have just got no idea about getting back to their own homes. And almost, I mean, generations now are being born outside Merging, of their... Yeah, without knowing their homeland at all and yeah. without ever knowing whether they can go from the south and Juba back to where they, the, the family came from. Ed, when you were serving in, um, in Iraq, is the movement of displaced persons, internally displaced persons, does that add to the security dimension? I think after um, conventional warfare, um, and it's seen out in Iraq that um, you know, the initial um, invasion into Iraq um, completely took out all the uh, infrastructure in terms of security. So there was no Iraqi police, no Iraqi security forces, and what you get is a um, an increase in you know in local militias and and almost almost a kind of a, um, gangster operations going around everywhere, and um, and and this. And this is where um, the Taliban in Pakistan um, is, you know, you know, really thrives on because what they do is then they offer um, uh, law, you know, from a complete lawless state. They'll order, you know, they'll, they'll, it won't be law as we know it. It won't be a you know, liberal democracy. Um, but some law is better than no law uh, for most people, which is why in, in, in the SWAT areas of Pakistan, uh, the Taliban actually were, you know, were popular to some people. Because this is what was happening in Somalia. That's why the Ethiopian yeah, army absolutely. went in, wasn't it? But, but one of the worrying things is with um, with all these displaced people, and you see it throughout the whole of the Horn of Africa as well, these displaced people, whether refugees or internally in their own country, uh, are severely targeted um, by uh, um, extremist organisations recruiting because they have grievances and they're very easy to adapt and manipulate and, 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 and spread their ideology. So this is one of the, one of the uh, concerns that uh, Pakistan's going to have to face and they're going to have to make sure there's stable security in this area once they finish their operations there. Right. Listen, let's stay and ex extend this with the work that you're doing at, um, at, at Quilliam. Um, I suppose, I mean, you describe it, or your people describe it, as the world's first counter-extremist think tank. 
Um, tell us what it does. Yep, um, Quillian was set up um, just over a year ago now. It was set up by two former um, leading ideologues, um, both um, from Islamist backgrounds, um, extremist Activist. backgrounds. Um, activists, yeah. They were not uh, violent extremists or Islamists, um, but they were, um, you know, um, very high up in, in these organisations. Um, I mean, they weren't bombers, let's get that. No, no, okay. no, no, no. They, they, were, they were former members of Hezbollah Tahrir, which is a non-violent um, Islamist group. Um, and um, and what, we, what we do is we have three strands of work. We train, so we trained over 600 government workers uh, through police, um, government, um, local authorities, community workers, imams, people? all the way from Aberdeen all the way down to Brighton. Um, so we've done that in the last six months, trained 600 people in a, um, a, radicalis a radicalisation awareness programme, which goes into political Islam and goes through the whole journey of, of, uh, of, of you know, being at school maybe, being radicalised by a um, non-violent extremist group such as Hezbollah Tahrir, and all the way the progression through you know, to becoming a suicide bomber. And, um, and giving government workers, people that aren't, you know, trained in Islam or trained in, you know, Muslim cultures and the tools to be able to counter the arguments of these extremists. That's one, one area that we work in. We also work in um, policy and research. So we've, you know, in, indeed the IPPR uh, report that we are talking about um, before, out of um, 109 of their recommendations, 13 are actually um, uh, recommending work that, that we do directly and indirectly in Chapter 9 of the Countering uh, Radicalisation. Um, and, and we've looked at um, uh, mosques throughout uh, the UK, we're looking at radicalisation in prisons, we're looking at uh, women's human rights, all, all, these, all these key features that are, um, that, that are affecting Muslim populations in, in the UK, affecting radicalisation, and, uh, and, and the government need to, uh, need to know about. I mean, where do you get the money from? Yep, um, we, what we do is, um, you know, we work very hard on our projects. We want to make sure that our projects are relevant, um, they're unique, and they're going to have influence in terms of government and in terms of the communities. Um, so we, we get together, we, uh, we decide what the projects are going to be, and then we bid to a private and public um, um, funding organisations. And if they're, you know, if they're happy with, with our uh, key deliverables and what we want to achieve, um, they will give us the money. So... Um, a lot, there's been a lot of talk about us being set up by the government and we're struggling the government. Uh, no, we're not. We, we're set up uh, uh, independently. We're a private limited company. So you go um, for government funding then? We do, we do. And, uh, and we have no um, qualms about taking government money because if they believe that our projects are worthwhile and they're going to have good effects in the UK, then we, we, we're happy to, um, to take government funding to achieve our aims. Claire, this, this government funding thing is difficult mm. for every every organisation, think tank, they say, oh, it's an, an arm of the, um, it's like the BBC World Service, just an arm of the Foreign Office, which is perfectly true as far as the Foreign Office is concerned. Absolutely, Chatham House used to be an arm of the Foreign Office, it was set up by the Foreign Office and fully funded by the Foreign Office, and what's happened since is pure economics. The Foreign Office no longer has the money, so they pay for individual projects, for individual meetings that we do, but our source of funding, uh, just as Ed has said, comes from people who are willing to pay because that's a, that's a reality of the market. And what you have to ensure as an organisation is you have a relevant balance of funders so that you're not either seen to be perceived or actually acting in the interests of others uh, than yourselves. John, I sense a sense of 
Can I sense a sense? A sense of sense of cynicism here on your part? Uh, certainly. Uh, um, my experience of, of Chatham House is it, it does seem to be um, <laughs> overburdened by Foreign Office influence and a large number of... the Middle East programme. And a large number A large number of the members are, are former members of the diplomatic service, but... Um, it does its best to, to keep it a certain distance, but it is inevitable that, that there's a leaning on them from uh, uh, Downing Street. OK. Um, can I just... I want to move on, but just one last question on this, uh, Ed. Is it a fundamental idea that you get to somebody who may be an extremist and you convince them, your task is to convince them to extend extremism into radicalism in, in the worst sense? Uh, we don't do de-radicalisation, so we don't take extremists and try and, mm. you know, correct them, them and uh, correct them. What we do is we try and give the tools and resources um, for young um, and old, in, you know, influence, influenced uh, Muslims to be able to make their own decisions. Um, we we give we 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 counter um, the arguments and uh, of the um, extremists, and we try and provide the tools for people to make their own decisions. Um, because this is the only way that, that you know they're going to um, steer away from uh, these extremist organisations. So that's so no, we don't do de-radicalisation, um, but we you know we counter the extremist narrative, and we uh, and, and and we allow people to have the tools to make their own decisions. Right. I want to try something else then, because what we're talking about doesn't have a direct link to media training, does it? But there is something. There is something of a connection when that media training is in London, and it is for students from places such as the Middle East and Africa, for examples. Now, on the line, Christabel King, who was a BBC foreign correspondent, the first presenter, I think, of the BBC's world television, who set up the TV station in Kosovo, has taught uh, Middle East students at Hilversum, and now is a tutor in broadcast journalism at London's City University. Um, it's not a bad CV, is it, in some ways, Christopher? In this business, um, you're in a good position to answer the obvious question. Given that the net and the media are so powerful, there is more than anecdotal notion that the media is legitimately a historically subversive a group and that media training centres provide the skills to encourage this. What do you think? Well, I mean, I think that you could always say that news is always subversive if it doesn't suit you. I mean, a lot of people would say about the MPs' allowances, all the stories that have come out on that, and maybe Gordon Brown would think that that was subversive. And the details of what happened in Iran's polling stations, you could also talk about that being subversive. But basically, information is power. And what we're teaching these journalists who come from all over the world, the Middle East, Africa, as you said, Russia, Ukraine, India, China, and nearly all the, all the countries you've been talking about in the Middle East, that that information, they must go out and get it, and that they must just try to find some way of telling people what's going on. I mean, presumably they come partially to beef up their CVs and, and, and get good jobs when, when they've left, left you. But is there something else? Is there another agenda that they come to the UK uh, rather than going elsewhere? 
I think that they've nearly all heard the BBC in one form, whether radio or television, and they're very impressed by the BBC. And, of course, there's all the language services that they've heard coming in. And, of course, in a lot of places, as we've learnt in Iran recently, that is what people listen to. And they listen to the way it's done, and they like that sort of attempt at objectivity and fairness. And they do come thinking that's what they're going to learn. And that's certainly the thrust of what we're trying to teach them, to try to start them thinking like that. Objectivity and subjectivity, I mean, hardly, hardly subjects that will ever settle a debate. Um, but the idea, um, I remember, for example, there used to be a notice at the BBC which said, be careful, they're going to believe you. Um, how do you do that? How do you impress people that come from a culture where sometimes perhaps they're not looking for objective reporting? Well, for instance, when you've got a Palestinian from Gaza and you've got an Israeli, what you do is when they directly they arrive, all they want to do is do stories on their own bits of the world. And what you do is you get the Palestinian to go to the Israeli embassy, who they think they're not going to get the interviews and they find they do. And you do vice versa. And then that starts some kind of dialogue and that they start to understand that they can actually go and talk to what they think at the beginning is the enemy. I wonder if, uh, I'm just bringing John Dickey here. John, I mean, having worked in the media for uh, a couple of decades, at least, mm. um, it's true, isn't it? We question the objectivity of reporting and broadcasting, but our questions about the readership and the audience's subjective reaction are worthless, aren't they? Well, it's all a question of selectivity. I mean, every night in any uh, Fleet Street office, you have about ten times the amount of material that you can ever use, and if you have to select the emphasis that you choose on your front page, on your phone page, and in so doing, you are influencing the reader. Uh, whether um, you can improve that, I don't know. One of the things that um, I wondered, Christabel, is that when those students have done your course, how long are they? The year courses, are they? They're one year, yes. Yeah. I mean, how do you measure, if you do measure, the difference in attitudes when they're, when they're returning? Well, I, I think one of the things that we're talking about now, particularly after what's happened in Iran, is this kind of new mindset where in the world of new media and social networking sites, um, the authorities now can't close down a story. This has been a very interesting year, particularly for them to be here, to watch this happening. So they're going back with this idea that this is possible. Now, to what extent they can actually implement that when they get back? But they, we're trying to give them this idea that if you haven't got access then you can ask the people to try and give you information and give you pictures. But then you do come into this whole problem, this whole challenge of how to verify the information, which everybody's been grappling with, with the Iran story. Yeah. I tell you, it's interesting. Yesterday, I, I noticed on the BBC News, the headline, uh, this is on when, in Wednesday, this was the headline, um, uh, Christabel, Israelis intercept Gaza aid ship. Now, everything about that headline said... Israelis are bastards. Look at that. <laughs> Look what they've done. They've inter in intercepted a, a poor old aid ship. It was a much bigger story than that, wasn't it? Yes, but I mean, I think that these are the kind of issues which are so useful having students from different parts of the world all sitting around and talking about because they, they look at that and then we find that maybe even an, a broadcaster that we really admire, we maybe don't like the way that that was done as well. So they're going to learn something from that as well. Yeah, I mean, I noticed that uh, there was an, an American congressman, U.S. congressman, Cynthia McKinney, on board. 
And it gets worse for the pro-Israeli observer. She says, um, it was an outrageous violation of international law as the boat was on a humanitarian mission and was not in Israeli waters. All this thing is actually true. Um, and then right down the bottom it said, actually, there were some pro-Palestinian activists of the Gaza Strip uh, on board as well. And so the idea that you've got to tell people, look, you've got to put all these things, and sometimes in your own national media... Some of the things that you've got to put in a story may not necessarily uh, be helpful. Yes, well, I mean, I do think that that we're moving into new territory at the moment because I think that the biggest challenge at the moment that everybody is dealing with is all this information coming from so many sources and trying to make a decision about what to be used. And now we've got the situation where we've got video coming in, which is possibly anonymous and nobody knows quite whether to use that so huge decisions are starting to be made i think it's getting harder and harder and it's certainly something which needs to be discussed and 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 considered and you hope that some of these students are going to take it back with you but everybody's dealing with this right across the media right chris bell stay on the line because i want to talk about uh, with you something something else in a moment um, but, but, John, there is also the difficulty of the amount of media control by governments. I mean, if you look at Zimbabwe, for example, the herald there is controlled entirely by the government, and uh, the radio is also controlled by the government. Again, you go to China, I mean, uh, the, the Xinhua News Agency controls more or less how the stories are interpreted. So that if you send back well-trained people as... Christabel no doubt does, it's terribly difficult to resist the pressures of the government ownership on the uh, reins of the media. Right. OK, it's all image. I wanted to talk about something totally different for the moment. Um, although in many of the places we've been discussing today, it would not be so. The MOD has had a day when reservists, R&R, R-M-R-T-A and R-F-E-R, have been wearing their uniforms to work. And one of them was Samantha Brettel, who works in the family auctioneer office in Shropshire. I think that's right, isn't it, uh, Samantha? It is, Chris, yes. Yeah. Uh, and when you're in uniform, you're Captain Samantha Brettel, the adjutant of the Royal Mercian and Lancastrian Yeomany. What was the idea of this, wearing uniform to work? I think it was to, to show to, to the, the general public that um, there are a lot of people out there who, who do don uniform and, and but also work, at, work as well. So it's just a way of bringing forward the, or putting into the public eye um, the, the, the role of the reservist TA or, 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 or the forces. So it's, it's a really good thing to do. And what was the reaction? Um, <laughs> most most of my customers uh, know uh, that I am I am in the TA, um, and the other people who sort of come in and, and look sort of perhaps give you a slight white berth because it is very strange to walk into an auction room and, and see a um, a person don in in combat ninety five. Well, especially when you're smacking a hammer down or a gavel down absolutely, or whatever. It is. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, um, there are these though, aren't there? The, the um public and private attitudes to the um, to the TA. I mean, there are still people who imagine that TA was not much a step up from Dad's army. Yeah, I think a while ago that was the attitude. And I think now because the general public see TA, other reservists, on, you know, on, 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 in the news actually out in Afghanistan or Iraq, I think the public perception is now that we are actually one army, um, TA, or, TA or otherwise, really. Do you find that some of um, I mean, some of your soldiers, that uh, companies are finding it more difficult in letting TA members go off for longer periods? 
Yes, I, th I think with, with, any, with any business it is difficult to, to lose a key member of staff, but I think because of the, the, the links we have with, with Sabre and, and, the, and the, the support that they do get, it's, it's a good way of – they can, they can get an awful lot of support. So it means that we're not leaving companies in the lurch. But again, yes, they are losing key members of staff, but the Army have things in place to help, to help, to help them. Yeah, and it's also true that I think perhaps more people, in, in, more of the public, recognise now that in a firefight you can't stand up and say, oh, you can't hit me or, um, because I'm TA. <laughs> we don't wear badges saying that we're TA and therefore don't hit us. It's, it, we, are, we are one, we're out, we are one army, and it doesn't matter whether you're a reservist or, or full-time, when you're out in, in a war zone, you are, the, you are one. Yeah. Samantha Brettel, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Um, Ed, did you serve with uh, TA at all? Um, I didn't serve with TA um, in terms of the same training, units, but um, yeah. no, but um, but I, I, I completely concur with what Samantha said in terms of the last five years. Um, the TA have gone from um, you know only only a very f small percentage being deployed in operations, and when I when when I left, um, I, I've heard of uh, you know almost a majority of a squadron being deployed out to Afghanistan. So it's, it's, it's gone from being what was perceived as a drinking club um, to an actual to, um, to units that have to be prepared to go to war because that brown letter um, may come through the door at any time. And, and it's, 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 le it's less of a selective do you want to go and, and if the needs arise, you're going. So, okay. yeah. I must add there's nothing wrong with drinking clubs. I mean, six minutes, in six minutes' time, um, BFBS will be going back to Wimbledon if you're, if you're, if you're hanging on there. But uh, a proper thought for the day, uh, Saturday is American Independence Day. And this week, the Iraqis celebrated a national holiday for regaining. Are you singing over there? I am not yeah, singing. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I mean, the United Kingdom has St. George's, uh, St. David's, St. Andrew's, and St. Patrick's, but they are not celebrated as one nation, are they? I'm just wondering, if we had a UK day, we would be one nation, or would we be identified with our relatively placid island society? Um, Christabel, still on, Christabel King. You lived and worked among African and Caribbean nations for whom national identity became particularly important, didn't it, for, uh, at an independence? Yes, I, I mean, I think we, to some extent, we exaggerated that in Africa because I do think that tribal identity was always much more important. And for many years, particularly with the sort of Cold War era, that everybody tried to pretend from the West that that didn't matter. But I think tribes is what really matters and still does now. And people, it's the, the first thing that African students say to me is what their tribe is rather than what country they came from. Yeah, well, the same with your lot, isn't it, John, in Scotland? I, I mean, I remember on one occasion I was in Lagos at the time of Hogmanay and somebody helped me um, <laughs> with my accent speaking and, and immediately I was invited to go to Hogmanay. It's very important to celebrate these national occasions and as a, a sort of minority tribe in, in the United Kingdom, uh, we regard them with a great deal of importance. You see, Ed, um, you have, you've, or you've had it in both ways. I mean, you have your nationality, but you also have this tribal thing or had the tribal thing of being a member of the Royal Signals. Uh, and I, well, this is true. I was at, uh, I was at a, a, a reunion uh, the other night for the Green Howards, uh, the wonderful Howards. And you'd think it was more important to being a member of the Green Howards than it was actually being Scottish or Irish or, or mostly Yorkshire, of course. And that's important, isn't it? I think it's very important. And, um, and having a sense of identity, being a member of a club, a team, is very important. And it's, it's one of the things that we've noticed in terms of radicalisation um, uh, young British Muslims haven't got that identity, identity like a, um, uh, um, 
you know, a, a young black man living in, uh, in in the UK. They've got the whole, you know, hip hop, you know, Afro Caribbean mm-hmm. um, clubs, you know, and, and that whole scene. Whereas a young British Muslim, it's very hard to right. I'm British. I'm Muslim. You know, who should I, who should I be? What identity? Manu. What Manu Chelsea? You but know, and that's yesterday yeah. in Prime Minister's question time that the Prime Minister gave an assurance to an MP that the Black Watch should be allowed to wear a red hackle, even though they had been amalgamated into the larger unit. I mean, this mm-hmm. indicated the, the distinct identity of the Black Watch and the watch fact have. that the Watch, a lot of the Black Watch, mm-hmm. come from Fiji as well. Yeah, that's another uh, thought. Tell me about the Middle East, Claire, because I mean, a lot of the uh, countries that you do with the Middle East, I mean, they're very young in terms of states. I mean, in the 1930s, 1920s. Uh, well, some of them, I mean, if you talk to the Moroccans, they have a monarchy which is uh, older than ours, so there's a sort of certain rallying around that as a, as a figurehead, and I think you find different combinations across the region. So I think while there's a lot of talk about Arab identity, the, the national identity has, has sunk in in most places, and people are very proud of it. They have found national symbols and national affiliations, and yes, the tribal element is still there in many ways, the clanic, the families, but I mean, I think we're living in a world where we do have multiple identities so I, I don't see this as a me- being a problem except if you fixate on one as being the essential identity and not accept the whole yeah but what about i mean going back to the thing i was talking about i mean okay independence day on saturday american independence day nobody gets up in the flag and they salute about their hands on their hearts we have um, we have st Andrew's day st patrick's day um st george's day I mean, what is it with the English? I mean, they've got no identity, have they? Because nobody has a proper St George's Day party unless you're in the BNP, John. Well, except that I've seen quite a number of flags go out on St George's Day and, uh, and there is a sense of uh, you know, unity in the, in the southern part of this kingdom. OK, Christabel, what do you reckon? Well, I think people really do want to go with St George's Day, but they're so frightened of links with the BNP. If we could somehow separate it, I think everybody wants it. Claire? Well, yes, I mean, I come from a, what is seen as a majority tribe. I'm, I'm English from the south of England, you know, associated Sussex. with the Tories. And, and not Sussex originally, Buckinghamshire, even worse. They've been Tory and Beaconsfield constituency since uh, before the Norman invasion, I would suggest. Um, but I always find these questions come up from others rather than... I don't think the English themselves have any problems at all. They tend to either be Yorkshire nationalist or, you know, they identify a bit with their county, but it's I don't think it's a really big issue. It seems to be an issue for everybody else though. Yeah, why is that Ed? Very briefly. I think it's not an issue because England has become very multicultural. It's and and uh, and we should so actually so Scottish uh, prime minister. <laughs> and we we, sh- we should celebrate being liberal and being and embracing all cultures. All right, we embrace all things here, including time. We hadn't got time to discuss the fact that Zimbabwe has got nine hundred and fifty million dollars in credit from China. We should have done, we didn't. Uh, my thanks to John Dickey, Claire Spencer, and Ed Jagger, uh, and also of course to Mary, who is still in the hut. Uh, and Christopher Lee, we'll be back next week. Bye now.